Romans chapter 8 is where we are going to be. Some of you know that uh, this is probably my favorite chapter of the Bible. I think it's maybe one of the most significant chapters of the entire Bible. It's, it's a chapter that I, that I find just has an enormous, an enormous amount of honesty in it. And, and we're not going to look at the entire chapter uh, this morning. We're probably just going to be looking at about five to seven verses together. Uh, but the, the honesty that is in Romans 8 as it discusses the, the, some, so the, the difficulty of our struggle still yet with sin, but the, the great hope and promise and the reality of, of, of God's Spirit being in us and He being greater uh, is just tremendous. And uh, what Romans 8, beginning in verses 18 and following, are going to do is they're going to help us make this transition from thinking about and remembering and celebrating the first advent of Jesus. That is, He came, He made His dwelling among us uh, to thinking ahead and looking at the promises of the second advent of Jesus. And so we've tried to have this rhythm built into our services over the past several weeks where we've been thinking about and celebrating the advent of Jesus. His first, that he came, and then his second, that is still yet promised. And so would you pray with me? We're going to get into the text here shortly, uh, but let's ask the Lord to just come and do work. Come and speak to us uh, because we need him more than anything. And so would you join me in that? Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the promises that, that the, the advent of your Son, the, the Word becoming flesh, uh, what, they, what they guaranteed, what they confirmed, and, and what, they, uh, what they guaranteed to still yet happen. And Lord, you've said that, that all the promises that you have made find their yes in Christ. And so it's by him that we utter, Amen. With great confidence, we say along with you, so be it, because we know that it will be, because you said that it will be. God, I pray that you would cause and and stir within us this morning hope. That as we eagerly await, and, and maybe that you would cause us to eagerly await, the second coming that we may wait for it with with patience and in hope because you are good and you are good on your word and you have said it's going to happen so Holy Spirit please come and do work in this place and pray that we would exalt Christ and it's in his good name I pray. Amen. As we turn this corner, let's think back to where we were in December 7th and then where we were last week. In December 7th, we looked at Romans 15, verses 8 to 13, where Christ came to show the truthfulness of God in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That's Old Testament. That's, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. That is the announcement and the prophecies of a ruler and Messiah to come. 
Christ came to show the truthfulness of God in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs that everything written about him, all 300 of the prophecies written about him would be and were confirmed to be true. And then the second part of the advent of of Christ showing the truthfulness of God was that the Gentiles might hope in him. And that was a promise that God had made. And we looked at Paul giving four different quotations from the Old Testament in this, in this giant funnel where at, at, the, at the outskirts of the funnel, at the widest part, it was just simply noted that the Gentiles were, were around God's people when they praised him. And then the funnel got a little smaller. And Paul quoted from a different part of the Old Testament. And, and, and then it was the, the Gentiles were invited to come and be a part of the praising of God. Then the funnel got a little smaller. And then the Israelites weren't in view at all in Psalm 117. And it was the Gentiles that were commanded to praise. And then the funnel got even a little smaller. And quoting from Isaiah, Paul said that Jesus would come and he would lord over the Gentiles. He would become our ruler. We would submit to him as king, but we would hope in him. And he wouldn't be this capricious ruler that would come and smite. He'd rather be a, a ruler who was characterized as the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father, the one long awaited and expected. And it would be in him that we would hope. And last week, my good friend John walked us through the five different dwellings of God. And you had, you had God in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. There, there was a, there was a friendship, a dwelling with one another that was unstained by sin. And then sin happened and and the whole created order fractured and became marred by by a brokenness and the consequences of that sin. And then you had God in the tabernacle and temple restraining his presence, but still allowing himself to be accessed. And then Jesus came in John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that word dwelling, it was literally the word tabernacle. It was like Jesus set up his tent and the presence of God now was enjoyed in the bodily form of the man Jesus Christ. And, and, and Jesus lived and dwelt with his people in that way. But then he was crucified. He rose from the grave and then he ascended and the promises that he made in the upper room to his disciples before his departure was that it's far better for you that I go because my spirit is coming. You just think about that for a minute. The disciples having walked with Jesus for three years, having lived with him, having eaten with him, having watched him do miracles. I mean, Simon's own mother-in-law got healed by this man and he's telling these guys, look, it's better for you that I go because the Holy Spirit's coming. You just think about how their minds, I don't think could have fully comprehended everything that meant. And then the Spirit came. And now God's Spirit, God Himself, the presence of God dwells with His people through His Spirit and does so corporately as we gather together, but also individually where you can be in your car alone and you're still the temple of the Lord. And it's this incredible mystery how individually we're something and yet collectively we're something. And my goal is to not unpack all of that for you this morning, but just to simply recognize that it is. And then the Nels just read for us from Revelation 21 that there will be a day where we will 
celebrate and enjoy the bodily presence of God. And there will be no temple in that city. There will be no sun. There's going to be no moon. I mean, did you, did you hear some of that imagery? I mean, the very things that we know that have been established by the Lord Himself in our created order that marks time for us, that gives us, as we had yesterday, 60 degree days with beautiful sunny skies. I mean, that's not going to happen because something greater is going to be there. We just can't, in some ways, get our minds wrapped around what that's going to be, but the imagery of Revelation 21 is so unbelievable. And it's characterized by Jesus himself wiping away every tear from our eyes. There's no more death. There's no more mourning. There's no more sickness. There's no more sorrow. And it's that second advent. It's that revealing of Christ in the glorified form that Paul in Romans chapter 8 verses 18 and following is going to get after. And he's going to say, look, that day is better than the best days. And it's certainly better than the worst and so when you have those great days know that there's better days coming and when you have those terrible days know that there's better days coming so look with me at verse 18 let's hop into the text he says this for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God and let's just stop there and we're just going to walk through these first several verses and, and and just just try to just try to find some things in here Paul leads off and says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed so let's just note there's something that's going to be revealed there's something that's not fully understood yet that's coming. There's a glory that's to be more fully recognized and revealed. And what is currently is not worth comparing with what's coming. So look at that word consider. It's not necessarily a real profound word for us in our English Bibles. But that word consider, it doesn't just mean to loosely weigh a few options. That word considers not you sitting around the dinner table debating what pizza place is better. It's not, well, I think Toledo's is better, or I think Frank's wins every time, or it's not Papa John's or Pizza Hut. And I guess Papa John's closing their doors kind of means that they lost the race. And this, this, isn't, this isn't us loosely debating what we like better. This is a, a logical conclusion that causes us to act. This is a considering. Think about it this way, and this may help some of you. Uh, th this is it's to, it's to think with conviction, where there's no question in your mind of what is true. So this may help some of you. I consider Ford is better than Chevy. Now, I don't really care. I've got a GM, I've got a Ford. Oddly enough, I like the starter in the Fords better. It, it takes me back to childhood memories, and it's just kind of a weird thing for me. Um, but if, if somebody came to you, and, and maybe it's just one of those good old boys, and you know what kind of boys I'm talking about, when they just said, I consider that Ford is better than Chevy, there's, there's really no debate 
in their minds. They're not inviting you to converse with them, to try to sway them. I mean, these are the boys that have the little stickers in the back windows of their trucks that clearly let you know they think Ford's better than Chevy because the little Ford guy's doing some things to the Chevy guy. And, and I mean, th- this, is, th- th- this is NASCAR style. I consider Dale Earnhardt Jr. better than Jeff Gordon. I mean, somebody says that. They're not inviting you in to sway their minds. They're saying it's a done deal. I think some of the King James rendering of this word is I reckon. Boy, it might even get a little bit more good old boy if we use that word. I reckon that Ford is better than Chevy. There's just no debate here. I'm not inviting you to debate with me on the merits of the statement I just made. We'll argue about it. And certainly those boys are more than willing to argue about these things. Uh, but we're not, don't expect my mind to get swayed. That's what Paul's saying here. I consider, I reckon that what is to come is not worth comparing to what currently is. What is to come is so far greater than what currently is, it's not even worth comparing. And this word consider we're told elsewhere to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. The only reason we're able to consider anything in this way, the only reason we're able to make a determination that, that what is coming is greater than what currently is, is because of the work of the Lord in our lives. And so we're, we're told in other places of Scripture that we are we're, we're reckoned with the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is counted towards us, that God considers us to be something. And it's because of His considering of us to have the righteousness of Christ that you and I are able to consider this. This is, this is God in, in, in justifying us allowing our minds to think in different ways than perhaps they most naturally are prone to think. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. I don't think Paul here laid out all of the options before him and made a clear, calculated decision. I think he took what was true about what he knew of his God. I think he took what was true of the promises that were given to him, and, and he decided that God's promises and the truths that God had already confirmed and the things that were yet to be confirmed were far greater than the shipwrecks, were far greater than the beatings, were far greater than the imprisonments, were far greater than friends of his that he watched turn their back on the faith, were far greater than being left for dead, were far greater than being chased out of cities, were far greater than anything. He's saying, I'm making a determination that what God has said is greater than everything else I may experience, however great or however sorrowful that is. 
And he moves on and he says, For the creation, (coughs) verse 19, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now this is a fascinating verse and Paul is going to take creation he's going to use creation as an illustration for us to be able to (coughs) excuse me unpack and understand some of the things that are going on here and what's happening if you will below the surface or within our souls and he says the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God now that word wait it shows up three different times in the passage that we are looking at this morning, but it shows up in total seven different times in the New Testament. And that word wait, every time it is used, speaks to the second coming of Christ. So when we're, <coughs> when we're talking about the waiting, it's a waiting for something very specific. It's the, it's the waiting of the revealing of the sons of God. It's the, it's the waiting of the glory that is to be revealed. Now that word revealed, it's, it's where we get our word apocalypse from. If you go book to the book of Revelation, the, the, the word revelation, the title of that book is this word revealed. It's the same word in the Greek. It's where we get our word apocalypse from. And I know we love apocalyptic literature and movies as culture. We've got the movie 2012, and you've got World War Z, and you've got a zombie apocalypse and Walking Dead, and you can just kind of keep going. The, the fascination with the apocalypse and the end of days is almost palpable in our culture but rather than than for uh, rather than us view and think of the apocalypse as a time where buildings are caving down and and all of this mayhem and destruction is surrounding the created order paul says in romans 8 that it's it's actually the glory of the lord that's to be revealed that is Jesus Christ who's to come and be revealed. Now, now I, I don't want to mince words or give us the wrong idea. For those who don't have faith in Christ, that will be a bad day. For those that have placed their faith and trust in Him, that day makes every other day pale in comparison. So Paul's saying that day, when, when Christ comes, that day, makes every other day, however great or however sorrowful, pale in comparison. He says the creation's waiting. It's waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That word longing means to literally stand on tiptoe or crane one's neck. Think about maybe what the little kids did in your homes or your grandkids. Or, I mean, there could have been some, some peeking around the corner at the Christmas tree or it, 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 kind of walking down the stairs gingerly trying to <coughs> not be seen by mom and dad. Because it, is it time? And we're going we're gonna to kind of crane our neck around the corner and we're going to look and we're going we're gonna to stand on tiptoe to get a better vantage point. And, and that's what Paul says that creation is doing. It's, it's longing for. It's standing on edge. It's waiting with bated breath for the revealing of the sons of God. And he continues, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children 
of God. Paul's saying here, and he's taking us right back to Genesis 3. He's taking us right back to the garden where the consequences of Adam's sin were laid down. And there was now brokenness in relationships. There was brokenness in the relationship that Adam would have with God and Adam would have with Eve. And there was brokenness in the created order. And there was going to be thorns and thistles that now infested the ground. And work was going to be not the joyful experience that God had intended it to be. It was, it was going to be toilsome. But creation itself suffered under that brokenness. It, while is declaring the glory of God, has not been able to do so fully since that day. But it's longing for that day. It's longing for that day when the heavens and the stars are going to declare God's glory in a full and final way that they have been unable to do so since Genesis 3. He says that day, creation's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation was subjected to futility. God laid consequences down on creation. It it wasn't done so willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that was God, but he subjected it in hope that creation would one day be set free. Paul continues, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That there's this, there's this illustration, and, and I, I, think it's, I think it's real. I think it's what, what you have when plates groan together. We have earthquakes. I think it's, I think it's groaning that's expressed in, in tornadoes and tsunamis that just 10 years ago ravished countries. And hurricanes, and, and there, there's this fracturing and this brokenness that has been introduced into the created order where with futility now creation exists. And it declares the glory of the Lord, but it does so in an incomplete way. Creation is like in the pains of childbirth, groaning for the glory that is to be revealed. Those of you who have kids, you know what those pains of childbirth are like. I mean, I've been in that delivery room three times, and, it, and, and, and the, the second two were the most fascinating because we didn't <coughs> fully know what to expect with Allegra. And then you kind of know with the next two. And, and there was just, just full-blown desire in my wife's heart, in my wife's mind, to just get it over with. Bring on the pain. I mean, I think she even said that with Tucker. I mean, bring it on because I want to get through it. I, I think that's the idea. That there is a groaning that creation is living underneath that is just saying, bring on the return of Christ. Come, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, bring it on. Because there's something greater to be revealed. His glory most fully seen. And, and creation's waiting for you and I to have transformed, glorified resurrection bodies. It's the adoption, the, the fully completed work where we are finally and fully, most completely redeemed. It's what you and I are groaning for as well. Verse 23, not only creation 
We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we've got the deposit of the Spirit, we've got the guarantee that what the Lord said He would complete, He will complete. We've got the first fruits. We groan inwardly as we wait. There's that word again, wait, eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, we're, Paul tells us in, in Romans eight fifteen and 16 that we've been adopted. We've been given the Spirit. We've been adopted, and it's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. And there's this tension that exists as Paul writes about what is and what will be. And there's this tension that exists because there, there's a, a more complete, a more fully completed existence that will be. But the first fruits have been given and they are what is. We can express it with these words, and I find them helpful. The, the already, what is, and the not yet, what's coming. And there's this, there's this sense that we have been adopted. We've been given the first fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. He guarantees that the good work the Lord began, He will complete. But that work has not yet been completed. And we await the redemption of our bodies. We groan inwardly as we wait for that. Now let's do a little work in regards to the redemption of our bodies because I think you may find this helpful. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 11, we'll go back to 10. But if Christ is in you, he's talking to believers, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is this already not yet tension. Where our bodies, literally the, the, the flesh, the emotions... The desires. I mean, you can, you can look at it all sorts of ways. You can look at it, at it pathologically. You can look at it psychologically. You can look at it biologically. And there are, there, are, there are ways that our body interacts that we can't fully understand, but it's not what they're fully intended to act. And our bodies are spoken of as, as mortal. We've not yet been clothed with immortality. That is coming. Our bodies are considered to be dead, but our spirits are alive. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. God Himself lives inside of us. We are His temple. (coughs) But that temple is one that is dying. That temple, the skin and bone, the flesh, the desires, the emotions, the the chemicals firings, the the pathological, psychological firings in our mind have not yet been redeemed. And so when you battle temptation, it's real. And your battle with temptation, whatever it may be, it could be chemical, it could be substance, whatever it is, it could be anger, it could be pride, that, that is real. But it's not as if the presence of that indicates a failure on God's part. The presence
presence of that, the presence of the temptation, the presence of the battle within and the ability to even see and identify the temptation communicates and and characterizes that God's Spirit lives in you. Because before you had the Spirit, there wasn't any recognition of that. The war you feel against your pride The war you feel against your lust, the war you feel against those things that you know break the heart of God, identify and characterize that God's Spirit lives inside of you and that there's life there, even though your body is mortal. Even though the body is still dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So Paul says that Our bodies are to be redeemed. And so in some ways, you and I should not be surprised when we face temptation, when we face anger that swells up, that wants to be fully vented, when we face selfishness that swells up and and just wants to be demanding, when we face the temptation to lust, when we face the temptation, and you can just fill in the blank, and the blanks are going to be different for every one of us. There shouldn't be a surprise. Because while the spirit is life, the body's still dead. And it's within that, that body of death that we groan. Our spirits, our souls groan and wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies where we're set free and there, there is no more sin or sickness. There is no more death or mourning. There's no more tears falling because we, we've been given resurrection bodies and, and every one of those tears have been wiped from our eyes. And this is what Paul says that we groan inwardly waiting for. And he says in verse 24, In this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's in this hope that we would spend eternity with the Lord. It's in this hope that we would be given resurrection bodies that he has forgiven our sin and and our relationship with him where once had been characterized by brokenness has now and is now characterized by reconciliation. It's, It's in this hope that we're saved. It's you and I placing our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, hoping that what God has said he will do. But Paul even goes on to recognize you don't yet see it. And I just love the honesty of Romans 8. For who hopes in what he sees? He says, now hope that is seen isn't hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there we are again waiting. Creation's waiting. It's groaning. It's waiting. You and I are groaning. We're waiting. We're waiting to not be so stinking selfish all the time. 
waiting to not have such a quick fuse all the time. We're waiting to be able to fully reflect and display the glory of the Lord as originally we had been designed to doing. Creation itself is groaning and waiting so that it can do that. You think about the majesty of the created world around us. It's even going to be more glorious. We wait for this hope. And we wait for it with patience. Now this patient waiting is not idleness. Please do not confuse patience with idleness. We are not an idle people while we patiently await for the Lord. But I think we wait by by worshiping and presenting all of who we are as living sacrifices to Him. We talked about this on Wednesday night. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, I urge you, I appeal to you, brothers, to offer your bodies, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. It's your spiritual act of worship. We wait by worshiping and presenting all of who we are before the Lord. We furiously pursue holiness and godliness in our lives because we have the Spirit and we know that God's purpose is to conform us to the image of His Son. And that's Romans eight twenty eight and 29. And we're not going to have the time to go there. But He tells us what His purpose is. What He's doing. What He's in the midst. And what He's working in us. It's conformity to the image of Christ. So we furiously, we ferociously pursue holiness. We recognize the the battle that we have against sin and we fight. We fight because we can fight. We fight because we can fight. We recognize there's still a battle. We're awaiting our full and final adoption. We're awaiting the redemption of our flesh. We're, rela- we're, we're awaiting, if we can go back a few weeks and just take some of the language that we had in our gospel series, we're awaiting for the justification that we already are to be fully realized into glorification. That we are fully now in every aspect and sense redeemed. Waiting for that. This waiting is characterized by a fight against sin and the temptations. And so we fight because the victory has been guaranteed. God has promised that the victory in that fight is guaranteed. And so we fight. And he says that any sufferings along the way will be eclipsed by the glory that is to come. We fight because we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. It's Romans 8.37. We fight because there's a day coming when He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in us. Romans 8.11. We fight because one day there will no longer be a need to fight. We fight in victory. We fight because God has promised that the battle will be won. 
I just, I love the honesty of this. I love the honesty of this chapter. I love the honesty, honestly, of, of 6, 7, and 8 together. And how Romans 6, 7, and 8 just, just encapsulate, I think, the believer's life. So these, these aren't New Year's resolutions. These are, these are convictions. These are gospel convictions. These are you and I considering something. You and I reckoning something. You and I being so sure in our minds that it causes us to act a certain way. I mean, for the good old boy that says Ford's better than Chevy, it, it would be a little surprising to see him buying a Chevy. But he believes something so strongly that it actually demands a response that is seen and demonstrated in his life. And it just simply means he doesn't buy Chevys. He buys Fords. But for you and I, the, these gospel convictions have to demand things. And these demands are characterized by, by what is seen as, as, as we live out our days. These are blood-bought promises and guarantees that you and I as God's children can take to the bank because Christ has dealt a death blow to sin and death. And you and I have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. And while we groan, while we ache underneath and await our full and final redemption, we do so in hope. And we do so with patience because he has risen from the grave and he is returning. And what will be revealed that day will so far eclipse what is today, however great today is or however sorrowful today may be. But we keep following him. Keep following him because his word is is proved true. God has shown us truthful because Christ came. And His promises that have been fulfilled lead us in hope to await patiently the promises that He has made that are yet to be fulfilled. So we fight and we wait, and we war, and we wrestle, and we do it with the strength that the Lord provides because He has provided the victory already. I asked the band to close us in one of the songs that we sang earlier this morning, Offering. The sun cannot compare to the glory of your love. There is no shadow in your presence. No mortal man would dare stand before your throne, before the Holy One of Heaven. I mean, this is the language that we've been looking at in the text. But the glory that's to be revealed is going to so far eclipse, the sun itself will just cease to exist. That chorus, I bring an offering of worship to my King. No one on earth deserves the praises that I bring. Jesus May you receive the honor that you're due. Oh Lord, I bring an offering to you. And as we sing this and as we close, I would just encourage you to sing this as a prayer. 
Sing this as, as perhaps maybe just a moment of, of, of dedication that, that, that your 2015 will be characterized by a conviction so rooted in the gospel that there will be differences in your life, not because you willed them to be, because you consider the promises of God and there was changes made because he's good on his word and his spirit's at work in your heart and he's revealing things. And he's causing you to, to surrender and to lay down things and to walk away from sin that might be entangling and trying to strangle out the life that you have. See, these aren't New Year's resolutions. These are convictions that we act from on the basis of the gospel. Christ has come. He died for us. He rose again, and he's coming back. May he do so quickly.